Well, hi, everyone. Welcome back to My Movie Story. This is Brian, your host here. Uh, this is the podcast where we talk to everyday people about three special films. And, uh, you know, we've been going for a few months now and, uh, you know, you've all been watching, commenting, sharing. So thanks, everybody, for following us so far and, and um, you know, embracing the podcast really positively. We've had lots of different guests on from all corners of the world. Uh, and I'd like to introduce my next guest today. This is Matt Jordan. Uh, Matt's retired Navy uh, and uh, he's worked in that area for many, many years. He's a married uh, man, father of four with 11 grandchildren, <laughs> and he's been writing for about 12 years and he mostly writes about um, politics. And he's the host of the Political Party Pooper Playbook, uh, which we we'll, might get him to tell us a little bit more about. And he's um, he's a sports fan. He follows a few different uh, sports codes and uh, in particular, the teams from uh, Philadelphia. And I believe his team is in the playoffs as we speak at the time of this recording, and he's hoping for for a win. Um, so, yeah, we'll um, we'll welcome him to the show. Matt, how are you? Welcome to, to My Movie Story. I'm doing well, Matt. It's great to be with you, Brian. Fantastic. Yes, thank you. Thank you for coming to us all the way from the States. And uh, you're in Virginia. But you you, you, for, you forgot to say the lovely and the talented Matt Jordan. Oh, right, right, right. You left that part out. Okay. I'm well, not sending you $5 now. Oh, damn. Well, it wasn't in your bio. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's Okay. Well, uh, yes, the lovely, talented, and uh, esteemed <laughs> guest. Thank you for thanks for joining us. Yeah, and and you're in Virginia, in the states, is that right? Virginia. Yeah, I'm in Virginia. I'm in beautiful downtown Colonial Beach. Fantastic. This place yeah. this place was hell in 1920. It was awesome, but right, right. now it's it's now just it's a nice. little dot on the river that nobody goes to anymore. Nice, quiet little town, and yeah, and uh, yeah, it's very how quiet. You described too. it. It sounds very nice. Sounds very nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Matt. So you've you've worked in the Navy, and uh, you now you're a writer and talk about politics and all kinds of things. So yeah, tell tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get to you know? Yeah, um, I was 23 years Navy, um, gunner's mate. That's where I lost my hearing. All the big guns. <laughs> right. Yeah. As a matter of fact, you can see that. Right there, that brass plate yep. is my missile, my missile launcher firing. Wow, uh, an anti-aircraft missile. Um, while I was in the Navy, I got the bug to do some writing and started started getting interested in politics. But when you're in uniform, you're not supposed to be political, you know. Although most people nowadays don't respect that, but I did, and I watched. Uh, Bush 41 yawned his way through a re-election campaign. And it was like watching a bad ball game. You're screaming at your team. Come on, man. Say this. Get get loud. Get in there. Touch noses. Yeah. And he didn't get excited until the last week. And by then it was too late. Right. You know, Clinton came rolling in. You know. Yeah. So I got an idea for a book. And I sat on it through the rest of my Navy career, then 15 years as a Defense Department contractor because I didn't want to commit that that much, that politically, when I'm working with Department of Defense. Yeah. And I finally wrote it, and I retired in 15. 
And that's when I published the book. It was pretty much in the can by 14. I started pinging on the the uh, the primary campaign for the 16 election. Yep. And used that for a lot of the meat of the book. Anyway, it's called Street Politics. Yep. Subtitle is It Ain't Your Daddy's GOP Anymore. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. And it's really offbeat. I'm very brash. I don't. I don't hold back on anything. Uh, I made a point in the book of saying it's important to be yourself, whatever that is. Yep. So I, I do drop a lot of F-bombs and, mm -hmm. you know, shocking statements that most people wouldn't expect from yeah. a conservative writer. Right. Well, that yeah, that, that's good. You know, it's give the, you know, it's, it's yeah. good to surprise people, isn't it? And yeah, go against, yeah. Go against the norm. Yeah. And it was it was interesting watching the 16 campaign unfold. Uh, the guy who, if you looked at my book and looked at his campaign, you'd think Bernie Sanders read the whole thing. Because hmm. using everything I said, including teaching, I believe a good politician should take opportunities to teach, hmm. especially nowadays since they don't teach civics anymore. Right. They teach nonsense in school. <laughs> so it's an opportunity yeah. to 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 get people on your side by teaching them things. Yeah. Bernie Sanders went from zero name recognition all the way to California. They had to throw him under the bus mm. to beat him. Yeah. And it the everything he did was right there in the book. All you had to do was open the book and yeah. you'd see it. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Sounds like a great yeah. read and you know at a, at a time where politics is is changing so much and you know what we're looking for in in leaders and and the kind of leaders that are putting themselves forward. There's a lot of there's a lot of change happening there. So I'm sure you've you know you're. I think the, the key word the key word you just said right there is leaders. Mm -hmm. We have come to see those people we elect as our leaders. Yep. They're not. They're legislators, administrators, executives. Yep. Not a one. By intention, in Australia, the United States, any constitutional republic, not a one is supposed to be a leader mm. of the people. Yeah. You know, Biden, chief executive of the military, I get that, chief executive of the executive branch. That's That makes sense to call him a leader in that respect. But the president is not our leader. Mm. And I think we've we've screwed up the system by make by putting him so high on the the totem pole yep and and, and the, the the hierarchy of, of of power in our lives yeah. yeah yeah the most important politician in your life should be your mayor yeah <laughs> that's a good he point should, he yeah. should be getting indigestion every day trying to take care of you the mm. president of the united states or the president of a country should be the last guy you think about mm. Yeah. Anyway, that's been no, that's that's a really been the, interesting the, point. The, the the underlying ideas behind my writing. Well, let's let's talk movies now, shall we? Uh, Matt? Yes, and, yes, um, absolutely. That I'm is sure, why uh, we are here. That's why we're here. And uh, your three films today have a sort of, I guess, there's a bit of a theme with a couple of them. You know, it looks at at war, and it looks at um, you know the the aftermath of war, and uh, also you've got people in in power and and people who, you know, made significant uh, impacts on history. So that seems to be a, a theme across your three films. 
And your first film is uh, the film that um, really changed your perspective. And uh, I'll let you tell us the title of that film and maybe if you could just give us a bit of a summary on what that film is. Well, the, the film is called Judgment at Nuremberg. It's a, in my opinion, a true cinematic masterpiece. It's black and white, 1961, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a true breakout piece in a lot of ways. As as entertainment value, uh, if you said you've watched it, right? You got a chance to see I did, it? I did get to watch it, yeah. yeah. And in terms of entertainment value, all the major stars in that film, all of them turned in their best performance ever yeah beyond question excellent judy garland yeah. judy garland breaks your heart in that movie yeah she really got into the part she is literally falling apart on the the witness stand mm. and you can see the emotion it's not acting you know it's taken on the pain of the whole the whole concept of nuremberg yeah but yeah. it centers around the nuremberg trials it's a Historical fiction. Yeah. The, the 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 people on the dock, the judges, the lawyers are based on real people, real types of people. But it's a piece um, created to discuss the lessons we learned at Nuremberg. Lessons that you or I wouldn't have seen until documentaries much, much later. Yeah. These guys were already digging into in 1961. And I thought that was amazing. Mm. Yeah, because it wasn't that long after the war had ended, really, um, that they were starting to explore this, you know, time in history. And, yeah, and and a lot of war movies, I guess, depicted some kind of battle or conflict in the war. This was very much looking at the aftermath and holding people accountable. So it's not necessarily like an action-packed film, but it definitely keeps no. you really engrossed. Yeah. Oh, it, it sucks you right in. And, and Maximilian Schell makes the movie. He was so good as a defense attorney. He was fantastic. And uh, yeah. Werner, Werner Klemperer, I'll never look at Colonel Klink the same again. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was so strange to see him in a in the role of an angry, psychotic lunatic mm. when he, you know, the, the only other two roles I've ever seen him in, he's kind of a, a bumbling goofball. <laughs> That's know? right, yeah. Yeah, he was, he was very serious in this role, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah he was um, very good. And there's a lot of films about, you know, the Nazis, World War Two, you know, the German invasion, the Holocaust, all of that. And not so many in this category where it's about looking at what's happened years later and, you know, putting these people on trial. So at the point, at this point, Hitler has come and gone. He's, he's been dead a long time. And you've got these three or four guys on trial who all played, you know, and in a crucial part in the Nazi plan and they're basically held to account and I, I really liked how the film didn't particularly take one side it you know it tried to look at both sides you know and, and explore mm -hmm. all the characters 
Um, and what, what were your thoughts on on that? Like, why do you think it chose to do that, you know, be diplomatic in that way and, and not sort of be one-sided? Well, it's difficult to do. Mm. Um, it's, uh, and especially in a situation like that, it's so highly charged emotionally. But I think one of the, the, the reason it helped me, and I think it comes through in a book, I think it comes through in my podcast, is I have things I advocate for. But I don't do so blindly. It's works like Judgment at Nuremberg that have forced me to, when I'm getting ready to make my point, to first question the point I'm about to make and question my motivations. Am I doing it out of blind loyalty to something? Am I doing it because it's just the thing to do? Mm. Or am I have I really thought this through? And I think the, uh, the Spencer Tracy part and the Maximilian Shell part Address that really, really well. Yeah, Shell obviously has to defend his his uh, his clients, and he challenges everything, all the order, all, all the the world order as it stood at that moment. Tracy just sits back and asks questions or challenges your thinking. One of that one of the uh, one of the co tribunal members mm-hmm. was always looking for the easy way out. Um, let's let's just get this done and go home. Yeah, you know, that's right. That's collect our paychecks problem. and leave. You know, you, you get you see people getting caught up in the expediency because the the airlift is the Berlin airlift is starting. There's a question whether or not we're going to be going to blows with the Soviet Union in 1948. Yeah, where the yeah. the story takes place, and that's all these things. I think what the director did best and the writer screenwriter did best was show how i guess what you'd call the good guys or 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 the the, the smarter members of the cast yep. worm their way through without adopting expediency without adopting prejudices hmm. spencer tracy's role is um utterly disgusted with nazism and the camps yep. and the the ovens he does that so well he he did so good at the subtleties of the part yep where it takes the whole movie, and I'm not going to do the spoiler. People should definitely watch it. Absolutely, yeah. But you literally see in the last three minutes where his feelings come out. Yeah, he doesn't doesn't scream them, but it hits hard. I mean, yeah. it's like wow, he was serious. You know, yeah, it was such a lengthy, drawn out trial, and they they didn't leave anything off the table. You know, and uh, no. they'd actually incorporated real footage from World War Two of like when all the uh, the bodies of the people uh, killed across all the different concentration camps, and oh, that was it was brutal. It was, yeah, the, some scenes were really hard to watch, but you know, and, and an important film to I guess understand that chapter in history. Uh, you know, and there's a few films that deal with that specifically. Uh, so to see it from I guess the courtroom perspective and and understand the motivations of the people who were there at the time. They thought they were serving their country. They thought they were doing the right thing by their country and their leader. And then anyone who's does anything, you know, they, they don't always think they're doing it for the wrong reasons. They can always justify it. Can't they? They always think they're doing it for the right reason, right. but then eventually they're put on trial. And then you can see the looks in the faces of these men on trial as, you know, they're having to relive what they've done. And you can see the remorse on their face. You can see the guilt. They're like, oh, my gosh, what have I done? 
you know, we we mm-hmm. we just did what we were told without any second thought, and millions and millions of people died. Yeah, it's an interesting portrayal of, I guess, of those people, and that they are still human, even though they committed these atrocities. Yeah, the the Burt mm-hmm. Lancaster role, the the heartbreak you see at himself, the anger and 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 anguish he feels for what he had done himself for not having stood up yep. and fought back. Mm-hmm. And now he's sitting in the dock. Yeah. And there's even times you start to think, well, they might, they might go easy on him. Yep. But uh, as a matter of fact, that cuts to the, the very questions that I, I had to deal with when I watched the movie. Cause you know, the victories write the history books. Yes. I grew up, I grew up with a very black and white picture of World War II. Mm. As I got a little older, I started to learn a few things. But it wasn't until I was adult, almost an adult, and I saw this movie for the first time. I started to think, it's not clear. Nazism was a horrendous blight on humanity. Yeah. But Max Shell's the lawyer, the defense lawyer, is correct. Until it became inconvenient, the whole world took Hitler and Mussolini and said, come on in. Yeah. You know, here's here's the engines we can sell you. Here's all the fuel we can sell you. You know, Uh, FDR's cabinet until until Hitler proved himself truly crazy. FDR's cabinet was enamored with Hitler and Mussolini Mm. and Stalin and Joe Stalin. They sent. Guys who ended up in his cabinet in the 20s went to the Soviet Union and went to their Potemkin villages and reported back that yep. communism's the greatest thing since perforated toilet paper. Hmm. So uh, eugenics, eugenics was not singular to Germany. Right. It was popular throughout the entire Western world. Eugenics or some form of it, even if it's just sterilization or lobotomy. Hmm. Things like that. If we're not going to kill them, let's at least quiet them down. Don't let them breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, the quote from the defense attorney quoting Oliver, Wend- Oliver Wendell Holmes was brutal. Yeah. You know, three three generations of imbeciles is enough. Yeah. And that that wasn't Joseph Goebbels. You know, that was Oliver mm-hmm. Wendell Holmes. There you go. So mm-hmm. it was easy for us to sit back we had the power, we had the money, we won the war, we wrote the books, and just say there's black and there's white. Yep. You know? Definitely. You absolutely do have to fight evil. Yeah. But you have to make sure that you're not a part of it. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I think what this film does, and, and you see it through the the um, the journey of the, of the judge, where when he's not on trial, you know, it, it follows him around and he's walking around exploring Nuremberg, He's getting to know the the uh, the helping staff where he's living and and trying to get an understanding yeah. of what it was like for them. And I and I thought for for an older film portraying that chapter in history, I thought that was really a really smart choice to go in that direction where it is about what what happened was terrible and what these people did during the war was atrocious. But if we don't seek to understand why that happened, then you know, history repeats itself and, and more people will come through and do the same things unless we understand, well, at what point did you decide that this was justified and warranted to to do this? You know, whatever it is, you know, 
And I think that's what this film tries to do. And certainly the judge, we see that through his eyes. He's trying to understand who are these people? Why did they do the things that they did? And what can we learn from this? I think that was a big takeaway from the film. Did, did you get the sense as well from the film? That Absolutely. To achieve that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the, the other two on the tribunal were simply trying to establish culpability mm. or lack of it. Spencer Tracy, Richard Whitmark, we're trying to establish responsibility yep. along with the culpability. And to what level does responsibility count more or less than culpability? Yeah. And, and in peeling it apart like that, it gave you a really good feel for what was actually happening, not what we were being told in the newspaper mm. or, or in our grade school history books, but what was actually occurring yep. immediately after the war. I was talking about early on how the U.S. and and the West embraced um, the strong men in the 20s and 30s. Yep. And di the dictatorship was not a dirty word at the time. No. no. There were a lot of people saying, I think this is what just people you would consider reasonable statesmen, politicians, writers saying, I think, I think we need dictators. Mm. And... Carl Vinson, the longest serving congressman up until 1965, from 1914 to 1965, he was in Congress and he wrote, he gave an interview. I found it under a floorboard. I was pulling up a floorboard and they'd use newspaper as a dust barrier. Oh, wow. I found this old, old 1933 report. Amazing. Of <laughs> Carl Vinson saying, this Hitler guy, we can work with him. Mm. He's smart. He's strong. He's in charge. This is the kind of guy we can work with. Jeez. That, that was no. not uncommon. That no, was not uncommon. No. At, at and the you, time, you talked at the about time when, you, when it looked like, yeah, this, this man can, can rally people and hopefully for the right, right reasons, you know, and then, yeah. and then what he would go on to do was completely, <laughs> completely different. And yeah. you, you talked about um, not understanding history and repeating it. If you go back through the newsfeed of Putin getting ready to attack Georgia and Obsetia and Ukraine, mm. he used the exact same justifications, almost word for word, as Hitler did with Czechoslovakia and Austria and right. the Sudetenland. You know, and then eventually he said that's the same justification to attack Western Poland. Uh, we're, we're saving Germanic speaking peoples. We're um, we're taking back what's ours. Right. All yeah. the same propaganda, all the same bullshit lines. Putin's using them right now. He's been using yeah. them for two years. Yeah, that's it. And it. with most people, it goes right over their head. Yeah. They don't recognize. Unless you stop and look at, like, you know, where where have we seen this before? Because, yeah, you know, history repeats itself. And, you know, one leader may just die and age out or be taken down, but it's not too long before someone else comes mm -hmm. along, um, unfortunately. <laughs> It's just the world we it's live not. in, but uh, yeah, and and just to sort of sort of wrap up this film, do you have a favorite scene or a favorite moment from the film, Matt, from uh, Judgment at Nuremberg? You'd like to mention? Um, that's a tough one. <laughs> Judy Garland's testimony is one part that just it gets you by the throat. Yeah, yeah. What a performance! And, Such a performance! Wow. Yeah, Terrific. and Burt Lancaster standing up and saying, "I'll testify." Mm. that was a good part yeah you know because at that point the whole world takes on a different shape yes. as soon as he stands up and yells at Harold Rolf 
Yep. You know, and then he agrees to stand and, and speak. And the speech was great. Yeah, yep. it was so well written. And even the judge's final uh, speech and comments, I was reading about this film afterwards and it was all filmed in one take. Um, who played the judge again? Was that was that Spencer Tracy? Spencer Tracy. Yes. Spencer Tracy, judge. yeah. Yeah, and his final uh, comments at the end, that was all filmed in one oh, take. Oh, that was all one take, yeah. With multiple cameras. And I'm like, wow, that is just quality acting there, you know. And and people... What's your favourite line from that speech? Oh, now you're putting me on the spot. Um <laughs> I can't quite remember a specific line, but I just remember the the, the whole impact uh, of that. It's one of my favorite lines from any movie ever. Yeah. Standing for something only means something when standing for something is most difficult. Ah, yes. Yeah, that one. Yep, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, Judgment and Nuremberg, you know, I was, uh, um, thank you for introducing this film to me. Uh, You know, one of the great perks of this podcast, I'm discovering all these films that, you know, I'm, I might get around to watching one day, but now I'm, I'm, I'm bringing that forward and watching all of these films uh, from all across all these different genres, all of that. So, yeah, great film. Anyone else who's looking for a, a great film from start to finish, acting, writing, directing, a really good history lesson and to teach the importance of not repeating <laughs> the mistakes of history. You know, you can't really go wrong with Judgment at Nuremberg. So terrific film, Matt. Thank you for, for sharing that yeah. with us. Before we move on, yes, I, I have a request. Yes, um, in 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 the Senate, when when you give a speech and you want to change it, it's called revise and extend. I'd okay. like to revise and extend my remarks regarding uh, Spencer Tracy's line sure. about standing for something. I was way too brash. It's too simplistic to say, "Fight or shut up." That, I you know, if I wrote that, I would scratch it out and write something else. <laughs> but uh, it. it it's important to to be your own person to to do what your uh, and we're going to talk about this in a few minutes. Do do what mm-hmm. your mind says is the right thing to do. Yeah. But we tend to um, uh, too much worship people or feel sorry for them or whatever uh, when it doesn't much matter what they do. Mm. We admire. The easy accomplishment, the the athlete, the actor. Um, yeah. But if it's easy to take a stand, if it's popular to take a stand, you're not a hero by taking that stand. You're just fortunate to be on that side of the argument. Yeah. It's mm. when you face job loss or embarrassment or family uh, uh, upset. Or risk your life. That's when standing for something means something. Oh yeah. And and that line changed a lot in the way I view life. Just that mm-hmm. one line. A great film, and there's just so, you know, I'm sure if that film's not studied in schools, you know, it should be. Uh, just for the it should um, be the amount that you can unpack from that movie. Um, beautiful. So now I'd like you to tell us about the film that you consider to be your all-time favorite, uh, Matt. Uh, this is another film that looks at, you know, an important chapter of history in terms of war. And, uh, yeah, tell us what the film is and give us a little summary about it. Well, um, it's another war picture. If You know, I'm nothing if not a, a war historian, a political historian. <laughs> um, the Bridge on the River Kwai. Fantastic. Turned defeat into victory. 
Got to do it, boy. You've got to do it now. British officer, here to blow up the bridge. Blow up the bridge. The bridge on the River Kwai. What have I done? Now, that was a tough call because there was another classic, uh, 12 O'Clock High. Oh, right. Um, uh, that was uh, Gregory Peck, B-17 pilot, testing the edge. Uh, but it, it, it deals with a lot of, uh, um, again, responsibility mm. um, and, and, and what our mind tells us and our heart tells us what to do. But I think as a, as a film, Bridge on the River Kwai was a better quality film with better acting. Um, yep. I think shoehorning the American character in there was a little campy. Yeah. Uh, but both of those, as it turns out, the Navy uses in leadership school. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. When you're, when you're working your way up to NCO and you get your first leadership school, uh, Bridge and River Kwai and, and um, 12 O'Clock High are featured. Oh, there you go. And they take you right down the outline and you show, okay, this is when uh, Gregory Peck was exercising this method of leadership and this method and Mm. This is where he failed, and mm. it's it's pretty interesting. Absolutely, but yeah. the questions I think River Kwai brings up are you know they're eternal questions. We'll always be trying to answer them: is what is power, what is duty, and what is loyalty? Mm. Absolutely, you know? yeah. Which is Was, really, we really see that in the relationship between um, Alec Alec Guinness's character. And the the Japanese admiral who's overseeing the building of the bridge. So there's a bit of a relationship right. there about about that. What you've just touched on, I thought, yeah, that's a great way. To... Yeah, lines lines get blurred. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and was he right? That's a hard question to answer. The men were dying, mm. and if the Alec Guinness character, if the colonel, the British colonel, didn't put his foot down, and take the battle all the way till either he was killed or he won, then men were going to continue to die for nothing. Yeah, and but, he, he never backed down, did he? No, yeah, and, and well, he, he did back down at one point. Again, oh, I don't want to spoil. Yes, yes, uh, the pivotal, but, moment, yes. <laughs> yeah, but what do you do in a situation like that? Do you help an enemy build a bridge? Mm. You know, and if you do, the men couldn't understand why aren't we sabotaging it we can yeah. build it we get food or taking care of us for doing it but why are we not at least dragging our feet and sabotaging our own efforts uh who had the real power yes you know yeah legitimate power, power belonged be. to sato yeah <laughs> initially Colonel, yeah and then he realized that yeah. if he wanted to get this bridge built because if he didn't get the bridge built uh he would he said he would be killed like he would be relieved right. of his duty right so he's mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm going to use these prisoners of war to build this bridge. But then the um, Alec Guinness character is like, well, no, that's not what we're here to do. We're here as your prisoners. But then I think there was a scene where one of the soldiers came out to Alec Guinness and said, why are you doing this? And and he said, well, after this war, this bridge is going to be used by other people. 
and it's going to stand the history of time and it's about doing something good for future generations and and uh you know you could i think at that point you could tell in the back of his mind he was thinking like well yes we'll build this bridge for the enemy but we've got this other agenda happening in the background and we're going to kind of pull the the wool cotton wool over their eyes so to speak and then yeah. we'll turn the tide was he being pragmatic or was he being uh is suffering a messianic complex mm. no, i'll do this you know? for you, but i'm really going to do this in return yeah <laughs> right yep. and yep. and what i like about the movie is it doesn't answer the question for you no at no point do you the viewer get to pass judgment on anybody sato proves that he's the man he, he backs up his brutality and his harshness by killing himself, mm. you know. Yep. Um, he was every bit the man he said he was, but he wasn't in charge anymore. No, not really. You know? He was just he the, had legitimate uh, the power. Really, wasn't he? He was just like the caretaker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He had legitimate power, but he didn't have real power. Mm. His loyalty could come into question for treating the prisoners better than prisoners were treated elsewhere. Certainly, the British colonels. Loyalty is called into question. Yes. Uh, the, and what is duty? Was the rescue mission or the sabotage mission to blow up the bridge? That to me is as loony as anything else that happened anywhere else in the movie. Mm. But yeah. to a sense of duty. People did what they did to survive, you know. And if, if you're describing this film to people, they'd be like, why would you watch a film about a bridge getting built if it's only going to get blown up? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, like I know yeah. a lot of moviegoers who would look at it that way, but it's like, well, it's about understanding what people did in time of war um, when they tried to maintain right. some kind of control and power in their situation, especially when you had like those British troops stripped of their power and control and, and had to become prisoners. But even in that situation, one of them stepped up and he's like, you know what, we're, we're soldiers, you're our enemy, so we're not really going to do what you want us to do. We'll do what is good for us if it gets us fed, gets us water, and doesn't get us shot. But in the end, it's about winning the war, and and in winning the war, you've got to try and win all those battles on the way. So I think this, mm -hmm. the the English officer saw this as a as a chance to um, win some little battles along the way, and he and he did, you know, by gaining the trust of the Japanese admiral and all of that. So it was it was a very smart take on you know on a war between two sides that wasn't really a, a, a war in that location. It was, it was building a bridge. It was working together, but in the end, obviously mm -hmm. the, the whole war had to come back and, and uh, you know, take over, I guess, <laughs> which is where the, well, yeah. Was. Yeah. yeah. In, in a sense, it would be inevitable because the Japanese would either succeed uh, or they'd be driven back in which case that bridge would end up being destroyed anyway. Mm. Yeah, uh, if, if nothing else, to cut off their retreat back yep. through Burma. And if, if if I could just ask you, like, quickly, like your your take on the Japanese um, element of World War Two, because obviously they came into World War Two a couple of years after it started, and it began with the you know the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and then trying to basically take over the whole Pacific, and you know invading all those small countries and islands. You know, Darwin in Australia's Northern Territory was bombed. They almost invaded Australia. And then it, it seemed to, you know, they didn't really seem to have much of a chance, I think. So I just, yeah, I just wanted to see what your take was on the Japanese 
um, part of World well, War Two? Because obviously we've, there's a lot of coverage of Ger Germany's involvement. But yeah, what are your thoughts on the Japanese conflict? Yeah, December 7th was a Hail Mary play. They knew we were going to uh, uh, install more sanctions. Hmm. And we were, we've, we'd already cut off their oil and we were not going to give it back. That's what the negotiations were about right. that were occurring at that time. Yeah. But Japanese hostilities went back to 1931, mm -hmm. 32, when they started what they called the Asian sphere of cooperation and friendship or something like that and took over Manchuria, just assumed control of it. Whenever they needed to expand, because Japan imports almost everything. Yeah. They were a crowded country in World War II. Now it's 10 times as bad. But they were already in China and Korea, and they were very, you know, very aggressive. They needed to get rubber. They needed to get oil. That was in the islands of the south. And they needed us out of the way. The brutality you see was the prevailing philosophy at the time, uh, a combination of uh, the empirical cult with the emperor and a fashionable shogun like we're, we're, they, they wanted to they wanted to bring back the harsh, hard life of the shogun, I think. Mm. Samurai. Right. Uh, uh, so, you know, there was a lot of Shinto uh, influence and violent influence on all the soldiers. So what we saw is brutal and is brutal. I don't I don't even think it's arguable. Yeah. They saw as militarily fashionable. If you lose, you lose. You're now you you now have the status of an animal, especially if right. you surrender. Yeah. Yes. It's seen you as don't a fight major till the death. weakness. Mm. Yeah. But they had to take us out. Yeah. And Yamamoto. It was his plan. Pearl Harbor was his plan. Right. And when he created it, he thought this is lunacy. But the emperor said, which is actually Kendo or somebody in the emperor's cabinet wanted it done or Tojo. But that was good enough. Yeah. So it has to be done. Right. And he regretted that when it happened, he didn't get the carriers. He knew he was screwed. He knew yeah. the Pacific Theater. They were buying time already at the big at when they entered World War II, they entered and it started backing up. Almost trying to control. Yeah. yeah. Hoping they could they could salvage something of what they gained. Yeah. And I think was it the uh Japanese the man you mentioned just before, head of the Japanese army after they attacked Pearl Harbor, what did he say? I fear all we've done is to awaken a sleeping giant. And fill him with a terrible result. Yep. And then America that was that was Yamamoto. Yes, yes, that's right. And yeah. then America fought back and yeah. We all know what happened then, with, and then obviously dropping the the H bomb and all that, which was just explored in Oppenheimer this year. Have you seen Oppenheimer? I did. Yes. Uh, I don't see the fuss. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I yeah. I thought the special effects. I mean, they put it. I saw it in in IMAX. Yeah. I saw oh. it in IMAX. Oh, cool. And yeah. uh, if it wasn't for that, the way they portrayed the the first. Chests and Alamogordo. I mm. thought that was 
that was really boring special effects. <laughs> they could have used they could have used the actual footage and had and made a bigger impact. Mm, yeah, I guess than, so. yeah, yeah, than the way they they showed it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's but, always, always good to hear a different opinion on uh, on films, which is what this show is all about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The acting was good. The writing was good. Yeah, and um, so. Coming back to Bridge on River Kwai, because that was my fault. I asked you about another movie, and I don't want us to get too off track, so I'll, I'll bring it back. <laughs> but um, okay, there's, there's so many great scenes in the Bridge on the River Kwai, and, and it is a, a very different take on on war, um, given the focus of the film. I think it even won Best Picture that year as well, so it got a, a yeah. whole bunch of accolades. And uh, is there a particular scene or moment in the film that really stuck with you, or that? Stands out the most? Uh, yes, yeah, Sato's surrender. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, we have, yeah, he's strutting around and, and they're making plans and he's talking to the engineers and the 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 Japanese engineers are taking notes and they, they go through lunch, they go through dinner, they've had drinks. He gave his last few demands to Sato and Sato's just sitting there just looking straight ahead. Mm-hmm. Saying it's already been ordered. The order has already been given. The order has already been given to, to watch the transfer of power. Yep. That's right. Not a shot fired. Nobody gets beat up. Yep. But the the, the transfer is complete. That's right. Yeah. That was and, that was very good. Yeah. And you almost you almost feel for, for Sato, don't you? You almost kind of feel sorry for the guy. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think he was necessarily a bad man or an evil man. He was fulfilling his role and he he found a way to work with with the English prisoners, and yeah, just obviously the the war went the way it did, and yeah, there's always a winner and there's always a loser, isn't there? So, yeah, it ties back to judgment. Yes, um, yeah, good tie-in. Yeah, he, he was a man of his time. He was he was doing what was expected. Everybody was doing it. How can you hold me responsible? Yeah. You know, justification. But you right? find out. Yeah, yeah, you find out he did have a conscience. He just didn't know how to use it. Yep. Until. Alec Guinness came along. That's right. Now he learned how to use it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so yeah. so brilliant. So so well done. So well done. And uh, and another great film from the history books. And for anyone who's not familiar with uh, Bridge on the River Kwai or hasn't watched it, um, for you know, I guess it, I guess it's a, a bit of a heist film. You know, about the 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 prisoners, I guess, fighting back and and taking control. Uh, and seeing how that all happens and, you know, the big explosion at the end is fantastic. No CGI back in those days. They actually blew no, up No, yeah, that's a, a real deal, yeah. Yeah, they blew up a bridge and, you know, it was... Uh, it was with, with a real steam engine train on it. That's right, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah. incredible filmmaking for its time. Yeah. All right, and we've got one more film to talk about. Um, Matt, if we, we might go on to that now, and uh, not necessarily a war film, but it comes from a, another important uh, time in history and a very important, well-known figure <laughs> from the history books. Um, and it, it is, it's about, I guess, the transfer of power, like we just talked about, uh, but in a different right. way. So that's um, that's enough from me. I'll let you tell us what the film is and if you could, yeah, just tell our, our yeah. listeners a little bit about it. The reason I like this film or this type of film, uh, when I watch these historical pieces, I then, number one, it sparks more interest in that time to, to, to read more stories about that time period. But also, I want to go back and check how, how accurate was the movie. Mm. 
And in this case, it's pretty accurate. There was no Sheen on Christmas court, for example. Yep. But um, there were palace intrigues in that family. Mm. That was a really defective family. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And just quickly, the title of the film, so we can... Uh, it's uh, uh, The Lion in Winter. The Lion in Winter. I have a confession. Yeah. I don't much like our children. <laughs> Peter O'Toole, Catherine Hepburn. Um, as far as um, um, entertainment, it changed the trajectory of Catherine Hepburn's career. Mm. She stopped being doing cute roles and took on more serious roles. Yeah, uh, that and uh, the one she did with Bogart, uh, uh, African Queen. Ah, uh, yes, yes. They, she started getting beefier work at that point. Yeah. It set a couple of careers, a few careers, yeah, on overdrive. Anthony Anthony uh, Hopkins, Hopkins, yeah. Anthony Hopkins was uh, in it. Yeah. That baby face and that thing. Um, and and I did have a list of the guys who were in it, and I a young don't Timothy have Dalton, I think, who played one of the sons. Dal Timothy that? Dalton, yeah, yep, Timothy Dalton, and um. Jeffrey, the one who played Jeffrey, mm. um, both will go on to have careers in cop shows in yes. England, yeah, along with their other credits. That's right. Uh, so it was a great platform. Obviously, a lot of people liked it, but it's also a good piece going along with a lot of the a lot of the uh, the subject we've been talking about. Yeah, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Good point. Uh, everybody yeah. in the film gets tripped up mm. with that one nugget of information they didn't have when they went in. Yep. Um, so that's that's always enjoyable. That was an enjoyable film. And it's Henry the Second, is that right? Who, who, Henry the Second. Henry the Second. Uh, a lot of people think this movie was a sequel to Beckett because okay. that was young Henry. O'Toole played young Henry in that movie. Right. And he had Beckett chopped up in the chapel. Oh, gosh. And they thought, yeah. well, now it's old Henry. This is just a sequel. But no, the two projects are not connected. Oh, okay. They're just a few years apart. Yep. I saw it live at the Walnut Street Theater. Oh, now, this was a treat play. for a young man. Yeah. yeah. Oh, right. right. Uh, George, George Pippard played the O'Toole part. Which wasn't very convincing. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> but yeah. but the girl who played Alice in the uh, in the stage play got naked at the opening of the third act. Oh right. Okay. So <laughs> I'm all about that. I was like, worth, thank you. Worth, worth the price of admission, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't mind. The park can do a terrible job. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, <laughs> and this is a film I didn't get the chance to watch before our chat, unfortunately. But um yeah, I guess 
the the general plot is uh, and I'll, you can fill in the blanks obviously but henry um, has three they, sons is that right yeah he has three sons, three sons he has yeah. a wife that he keeps locked up in a tower <laughs> because she keeps trying to overthrow him gosh yeah what a guy um <laughs> then and that the two of them are genuinely in love they just can't be in a room together without trying to kill each other right uh so he declares christmas in shinon and has a release from prison uh, he calls Philip, King Philip from France, France over to negotiate Alice's marriage to one of his sons, which will create an alliance for France. Yep. He is he was both enemy and friend to Philip's father. Okay. And Philip hated him mm. for both. For being either one, he hated him. So that's where the intrigue starts. Richard wants to be king. John wants to be king. Jeffrey wants to be king. But Jeffrey's willing to play one brother off another, a brother off a father, Philip right. off of everybody. You know, yep. Jeffrey, I think, was the understated, but possibly the most interesting part mm -hmm. in the movie. Very quiet, doesn't steal the show. Right. O'Toole, O'Toole and Hopkins kind of competed at stealing the show. Yeah. Yeah. Two very strong but, actors. Uh, yeah. Jeffrey and 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 Philip. Uh, those two characters are very understated, very believable, and interesting, even though they rarely raise their voice. Right. Yeah. Well, quiet and unassuming, but quite often they're the ones you have to watch, right? <laughs> and and tell us a little bit about Henry II, because I know I'm not great on, you know, um, the history of the, the royals in England, but I know there was a few Henrys. There was a Henry VIII, I think, yeah. who was quite crucial to history, but that Henry the Henry the Second. Um, what was his What was his deal? <laughs> Henry the Second. He's he's not far removed from William the Conqueror. Uh, the The English crown was still kind of young mm. when Henry came along. This was 1188. Started a massive building and political project in England. He yeah. he, he, he was quite accomplished. England and France were always flailing back and forth between friendship and war. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or I, sh I should say trade in war. Uh, and whenever one spotted the, the slightest opportunity to take the slightest piece of land from the other, they would go to war. Yeah. All, all um, over land, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. When, when yeah. we see Henry in the film, he's old. He's fought his battles. He, he conquered, conquered Aquitaine. He owns it now. Ellen is his wife. She was the queen of Aquitaine. He uh, uh, defeated and cuckolded Philip's father. And now he says, I want to know the peace of deciding which man should get a cow for damages <laughs> or a sheep, you know, right. and a whole court and just just be that kind of guy. Right. As opposed to being on campaign and and. Mm. Uh, constantly in heated negotiation. Right. Uh, he wanted to know peace, mm -hmm. but he never would because his wife wouldn't uh, pass up an opportunity yeah. to wipe him out. His sons are looking to. At yeah. one point, they all have knives. They all knives are going to stab him. Yep. You know. Yeah, that's a uh, the call very interesting dagger, wasn't it? Time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think it. It, it was a good play on political intrigue mm -hmm. 
in general. You know, if you look like you look at what the knuckleheads are doing, our House of Representatives. Yeah. And I mean, these guys are my party and I want to just get rid of all of them. Just yeah, you have something. a vote. Yeah. It doesn't work out. So you bring these guys along. You have the same same vote. And these guys let you down. Yep. And they're they're all making what I'm sure are really amateur deals behind the scenes that they're going to regret later. But it, it has that same character. Yeah. You know, and I love this guy, but I'll stab him in the back. Yeah, that's it. And again, history repeats itself, doesn't it? We're talking about mm -hmm. Henry II, and that was, what What did you say, like the 1100s? 1188. Yeah, so a 1,000 years ago, right? Just almost. Right. 900 years ago. Mm -hmm. How You know, how how far have we come, really, when it comes to, I think the thing that never changes over history, and we can see this in all the different films and TV shows and books and different portrayals, is the the rise to power and what people will do to cling on to that power or what they're willing to do to take the power of someone else. Um, because, you know, whoever has the power, has the control, uh, has, is less accountable, can make all the decisions, gets all the perks, all the pleasure, right? So that's that's really the thing that's never changed about humanity over the years. Yeah. yeah. For, all our, for all our technology, for all our systems, our modern economy, our buildings, uh, we're still very much the people that walked the earth in the earliest Roman times, Greek mm. times, yep. all the same foibles, all the same jealousies, resentments. I would say maturity tends to wax and wane through society, but pretty much we're still mostly immature yeah. in our impulses and in our actions. We're still quite primitive, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. Except for me and you, we're, we're you and I are the exception. Absolutely. You know, we're good looking. We're brilliant. Incredibly <laughs> mature. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, that's what I like to tell myself. But, you know, some some people might disagree. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. It's a nice compliment. And and same to yeah. you, Matt. Absolutely. <laughs> but, yeah, it's. But um, it's, it's I got to tell you. You look back over history and how there's things that never change. So much has changed. But there's so much that will, will never change because it's human nature. And human nature doesn't really yeah. change, does it? No, it does not. No, we 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 can we can make her around the edges, but it's like the economy and gravity. Uh, you can't force it to go away. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And just the, I guess, um, with this film, Line in Winter, is there a particular scene or moment that's one of your favorites from the film? There's so many. Again, <laughs> it's a hard choice. Isn't well, it? The, the 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 tapestry scene that that you when you finally see it, you'll recognize it is when the sons, all the sons' treachery all comes to a head at the same time. Mm. I'll only say the father and the three sons were all in the room at the time, but none of them knew that they were all in the room at the time until the climax of the scene. It's really well done. Yep. And the battle royal between uh, Henry and, and Eleanor, Kate Hepburn screams at the top of her voice, mm. I could peel you like a grape and God himself would call it justice. <laughs> oh, what a great line. That's a great line. Yeah. 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 It was really good. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I, well, I, I recommend appreciate you. I appreciate you not spoiling your films. Um, I think that's yeah, very, very respectful for people who haven't watched this and the way you've spoken about each film, you know, with, with your knowledge and your, your passion for them, hopefully we'll get some people to 
make an effort to go and watch them. And um, yeah. Lion and Winter is definitely on my my list of films to watch. And I'm I'm more intrigued now than I was before. So so thank you. <laughs> and yeah. well, this uh, you was know. a this was an interesting experience. This was a you gave me a tough assignment, man. <laughs> I I have I went through just what I remembered today of all the movies that shot through my head. Yep. Absolutely. But there was there was one film that should have been the greatest of all time, would have been all three of these categories. But the uh the directors and the actors really were pretty bad. That was the Winds of War and War and Remembrance. They were a mini series based on okay. books by Herman Woke. Uh, really? it's worth a watch. If you okay. ever if you want to binge on a mini series, yep. Winds of War and War and Remembrance are worth a watch. All right, I'll look I was, them up. I was, yeah, it's a real disappointment that it didn't end up on a list like this. <laughs> well, we can always have you back were... for uh, part two, Matt, of uh, for my movie story, and yeah. um, we'll come back around and we'll explore some other films that you like. But uh, that sounds yeah. like a great idea. Yeah, absolutely, it'd be great to have you back. So, um, so yeah, once again, thank you for being on the show, my movie story, and bringing your uh, you know your passion and interest for for war and history and politics and. Three great films. Uh, there's so many films out there. I know. I know it's a hard choice. Everybody tells me that. I know it's hard. <laughs> so yeah. thank you for narrowing it down to three. And you've, you know, you've really uh, shed a really interesting light on each of these films and the issues that they talk about. So hopefully people will check them out, and um, we will share the titles and the links to the films under this episode. So yeah, in wrapping up, thank you very much, Matt. I appreciate you coming on the show and uh, being a guest on my movie story. It was great to have you. You're certainly welcome, and uh, thank you, uh, Brian. It's been care. great. All right. All right.